It's great to see you this morning. I'm going to ask all of you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4. If you're visiting us for the first time or first time in a long time or you've been on vacation for a little bit, we this summer are spending, uh, spending the summer in this book of Daniel. If you didn't know that you needed a Bible, that's okay. Just use your smartphone and type into Google or Safari or whatever it is. Type in Daniel and then the number 4. Daniel and the number four will take you to a link where you can follow along with us this morning. Uh, the title of the topic today is Pride Comes First. Pride comes first. We all know someone who's proud. We all know someone who's a little cocky. We all know someone who's a know-it-all. Uh, we all know someone who's stuck up. You know, that's what we used. That's the term we used in elementary school. She's so stuck up, you know, stuff like that. And so who do you know? Who do you know that's stuck up, uh, that's, that's cocky, that's prideful? Hey, you got someone in your mind? I want you to yell out their name when I count to three. Here we go. One, two, don't do it. Don't do it. You're probably going to yell out my name, all right? Pride is so easy to see in other people, isn't it? You can see pride in someone a mile away. But pride is so hard to see in ourselves. Would you agree with that? You don't want to admit that you're proud. You don't want to admit that. It's so hard for us to say, I'm proud. We'll say just about anything before we say, I'm proud. And maybe you're here today and you say, you know, pride really isn't my thing. I don't really have a problem with pride. Um, pride's not my issue. You know what that is? That's pride. And so now you're like the rest of us, okay? Now, this is an important topic for someone who's a Christian, I want to show you what God says about pride. I have it up here on the screen. God says that a proud heart is sin. God says that everyone who is proud is an abomination. God says pride and arrogance I hate. And God says pride goes before destruction. And God says a man's pride will bring him low. God says when pride comes, then comes dishonor. And God says, God is opposed to the proud, and then the finish of that verse, but gives grace to the humble. And so if you're a Christian, you might look at that and you're like, man, does that worry you at all? You know, I get my kids' uh, scores from school, the report card, and you're like, yes, at least they got an A somewhere. I'm proud of it. They got an A in PE. Good job. Oh, man, I'm going to hell because of that. <laughs> You're kind of proud at work because you finished a, a project and they kind of gave you a little bit of a claim or they gave you a bonus. And they're like, man, am I going to go to destruction for that? You're proud that you didn't cram 11 donuts into a coffee cup here at Grace and put a lid on it to pretend like it's coffee so no one would know. I know how you all work. I know how that works. You didn't cram 11 in. You only crammed 10 in and you're proud of that fact. Or this last on the 4th on Independence Day, you sung along with the song that said, I'm proud to be an American. And now God's going to send me to hell for that? Don't worry. Those are not the kinds of pride that we're talking about today. I'm not here to make you feel guilty about that. God's not here to make you feel guilty about those kinds of pride. But there's another kind of pride that you might want to be worried about. And that's the kind of pride that we're talking about 
today. Nebuchadnezzar experienced the kind of pride that we all experience. And so I want to show it to you. That's why we're in Daniel chapter 4. You remember that this book began with Daniel being a 14-year-old kid, being taken hostage, going off to a Babylon University with Nebuchadnezzar being the king of the entire known world. He has conquered the entire known world. And Daniel being a godly young teenager, he grew up in a great Christian home and he found three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so those four are godly, and the king respects them for that because God gave them some abilities that allowed them to rise very high in the political structure of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so by the time we get to chapter 4, he's not a 14-year-old kid anymore. He's getting close to around 50, right? So we're just kind of moving through time as we continue to move through the book of Daniel. So look at Daniel chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. We hear directly from that king, Nebuchadnezzar. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. Did you know that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, wrote a chapter in the Bible? Did you know that? That's what we're reading today. This one's from Nebuchadnezzar. Now, actually, I think Daniel was the inspired author here, but he wrote down a biography coming from Nebuchadnezzar. These are his words. This is his spiritual biography. In Christians, we'd call that his testimony, but that's what this is. This is his spiritual biography of the head of gold of that statue of uh, several weeks ago. And verse two, it says, as it seemed good to me, Nebuchadnezzar says, to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me, how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. He has something that he wants to tell his readers that's good. (laughs) That's my interpretation of that. It's going to be good. And so verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Some translations use instead of ease and flourishing, content and prosperous. But you get the idea. He's sitting back in his palace and everything is just perfect. Everything is great. And that is like the DMZ zone of pride. When things are easy, when things are going good, that's where pride comes. And it really did come for Nebuchadnezzar that way. He's sitting in his palace. He had just done a complete renovation of his palace and really of entire Babylon. He did the home makeover mega edition, and he created these hanging gardens. Have you ever heard of the hanging gardens of Babylon? It's known as one of the seven wonders of the world. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar built that during this time, and these gardens would grow off the top of of his palace, and they'd hang down over the colonnades that he would walk through, providing shade in those areas. And this was just such a beautiful thing. And so he's sitting back in this beautiful palace, sitting back in his lazy boy that reclines, that massages, that heats, that cools. He has people bringing him everything that he needs. He is content and he is prosperous. And this is where pride comes when everything's going nice and easy. And so Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. That's where we're going here. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. I don't know what it is with this guy in dreams. He's got dreams. Does he have like bad shrimp and it's causing dreams? That's not why Nebuchadnezzar keeps having these dreams. The reason that Nebuchadnezzar keeps having these dreams is because God knows that that's the way to get his attention. He'll get other people's attention in other ways, but he can get 
Nebuchadnezzar's attention through dreams because Nebuchadnezzar believed in the gods, the many gods, lowercase g, the many gods of Babylon. And so he wanted to please the many gods of Babylon, and he believed that they spoke through dreams, and so that's why he had all these wise men around. He would train the wise men at Babylon University so that then they could interpret his dreams so that he could please the gods. Well, when God, the one true God in heaven, would give Nebuchadnezzar a dream, none of these imposter, faker, wise men could interpret those dreams, but one guy could. It was Daniel because God gave him the ability to interpret these dreams. And so verse 5 is him beginning to describe the dream. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay in my bed, and the visions in my head kept alarming me. So he has a scary dream. How many of you have had a scary dream in your life? I have scary dreams, just like you. Mine come from caffeine. I know that if I drink caffeine late at night, like a coffee or soda or whatever, I will like night terrors like that, like really bad dreams. So I love coffee. I drink it in the evening, but I just have to drink decaf because I get these night terrors. And so is God speaking to me when I'm having these caffeine-fueled night terrors? I've had several people ask me as we've been going through the book of Daniel, does God still speak through dreams? Is God speaking to me in these caffeine-fueled night terrors that I'm having? And the the quick general answer is no. No. Could he do that? Sure. God has not lost his power to speak through dreams, but generally he doesn't, and it's because he has already spoken to us. How has God already spoken to us? Okay, some of you already know the right answer. In church, the answer is either Jesus or the Bible. So just pick one. And the answer is yes, he's already spoken to us through the Bible. When we say that this is his word, what we are saying is is this is the way that God in heaven has spoken to us. And in this, we learn his character. We learn what he has done for us. We learn what that makes us. That makes us children. That makes us heirs of his kingdom. And it also lets us know what his will is for our life. And so when we say this is his word, this is what we're saying, that he is speaking to us through the Bible. And so big picture answer to questions about dreams and God speaking through dreams is that he doesn't need to speak through dreams because he's already been much more clear here. Isn't this much clearer than a dream? Absolutely it is. And so generally my recommendation is you can start paying attention to your dreams and start trying to interpret your dreams once you have everything in the Bible nailed down, all right? Everything in here, every single thing, you live out perfectly. Once you get to that spot, then you can start worrying about your dreams, right? But not until then. But God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar through this dream, and he says it's very frightening. He had too, much, too many shots in his latte that night, and it's a scary dream, verse 5. So, verse 6, so I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. 
But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar. Remember his name getting changed to Belshazzar? That's the Babylonian name that was given to him. We know him as Daniel, and that's just because there's a book in the Bible named after him. He got a new name just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because that's how they're referenced here in the book of Daniel. But remember, they had other names too before this, Hebrew names. And so Belshazzar is the name that Nebuchadnezzar knows Daniel by, right? Whose name is Belshazzar according to the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy God, and I related the dream to him. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel or Belshazzar. Oh, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians. He's kissing up to the most powerful man in the world is kissing up to Daniel because he's the only one that can interpret the dream. Since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen along with its interpretation. Verse 10, now these are the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. So here he begins to describe his dream. I was looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. And the tree grew large and became strong and its height reached to the sky. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. And so he's recounting his dream, and his dream is a giant tree. The tree is so big that you can see it from every horizon all around the world. Wherever you're standing on earth, you can see this tree. And all the animals are feeding themselves from this tree. All the animals are finding a place to find a home in, uh, under this tree. It's such a huge tree. And now, if you don't think that's weird, things get way weirder because dreams do that, right? They kind of like take a weird twist and you wake up and you wonder what that was about. Well, it gets even weirder. Look at verse 13. I was looking in the visions in my head as I lay in bed and behold, an angelic watcher a holy one descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Uh, something just changed right there. What just changed right there? It went from a tree to a hymn. And so now this tree is a person, is a hymn. This tree represents somebody. Continue reading in verse 15. Let him share with the beasts in the grass of the field. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Remember now that this angelic watcher is still speaking, verse 17. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High, meaning God, is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men, basically meaning God is in charge. 
God is the one who's in charge. God is the one who puts very lowly people into very high positions. God is the one who put, more specifically, Nebuchadnezzar in the position of being really the king over the entire world. So remember, Daniel is the only one that can interpret this. Look at verse 18. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretations. But you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was appalled for a while, at his, and his thoughts alarmed him. This was a bad dream. And so Daniel's in a bad spot because he's about to give... Nebuchadnezzar some very bad news, and I think the king could read it on his face, and the king responded and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. But Belshazzar, who's Daniel, said, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation for your adversaries, but of course it wasn't. It was for Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 20, the tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth. Skip down to verse 22. That tree, it is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion is to the end of the earth. And this does describe the head of gold of that statue who had complete dominating dominion over the entire known world. Everyone who was alive, was under the tree of Nebuchadnezzar. Everyone was. Everyone found a home under Nebuchadnezzar. Everyone who ate dinner that night was eating under Nebuchadnezzar. He had complete authority. It was all coming from Babylon, his nation that he led. He is this tree. But don't forget what happens to the tree. I go verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king. Verse 25, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time, seven years will pass over you, and you will recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. You're going to lose your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. That's what he's saying. You're the tree, and you're going to get chopped down. You're going to lose your kingdom. But don't worry, the kingdom isn't gone. You're going to get it back. Verse 26, and in that it was commanded to leave a stump. Remember that stump that was left? Leave the stump with its roots in the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it, it is heaven that rules. So you're, you're going to lose your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. This is the most powerful man in the world. And Daniel is telling him that you're going to lose your kingdom. Don't worry, it's not gone. Once you recognize that it is God who puts you in the position that you are, once you realize that you are under somebody, you are under God, then you will have your kingdom restored to you, that the stump is still there, the roots are still there. Verse 27, and after this terrible declaration from 
the angelic watcher, now through Daniel, verse 24, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Here's a little advice for you, Nebuchadnezzar. Break away from your sins by doing righteousness, and break away from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. There's this super slim little chance, Nebuchadnezzar, that you can get out from, from this dream. There's a slim little sliver of a chance that you might not have to lose your kingdom and you might not have to experience what is being described here. And here is the way that you would get out of it. Stop your sinning. And we don't know exactly what that sin was. It doesn't tell us specifically what that sin was. But you can already tell from Nebuchadnezzar as we've been reading uh, the story of Nebuchadnezzar over the last, uh, say, eight weeks now or something like that that Nebuchadnezzar had complete supreme authority. He was the highest on the food chain. And because of that absolute power, he didn't have to abide by anybody's rules. He made up his own rules. And so that absolute authority allowed him to sidestep God's rules and just make up his own instead. And Daniel says, once you recognize that God is the one who put you where you were, once you realize that, that God is the one who put you being a lowly person into the high position that you're in, then God will restore your kingdom, but not until then. So why, why this dream? Why would this happen? Two reasons. First, remember why this book was written. You remember that from week one? This book was written as a way to reassure the Jews who are in slavery, that God is in control. Remember that? That God ha has power over all the nation's leaders for all of time, ultimately culminating in the return of Jesus Christ and bringing his kingdom for the Jews that will fulfill all the promises. And so this is just another story where God sneaks in and says, ah, I'm in control. I'm the one that put Nebuchadnezzar where he is. I'm the one that's going to put all of the other future nation's leaders where they are. I'm still in control. That's one of the reasons that this is written here in Daniel. But, the, but Nebuchadnezzar got it too. And the reason that Nebuchadnezzar got it, because he needed to be reminded that he wasn't the supreme authority, that he was under someone, that he was under God who had given him all the authority that he had. And that had got, has got to be hard for someone with supreme power. That has to be a hard thing. And so the question then is, after Daniel gives this interpretation of the dream, and, and it's a pretty tragic one, you're going to lose, lose it all unless you change, unless you stop sinning. Did Nebuchadnezzar stop? That's the question. Look down at verse 29. Verse 29 of chapter 4. Twelve months later, he, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. So now here we are, one year later, and the king is still a king. Nothing has happened there yet. There are some other things that have happened in this last year. History tells us that during this year, Nebuchadnezzar went down to Egypt because there was an uprising in kind of a corner of this kingdom of his, and he went down and personally crushed that. And he comes back home with this victory underneath his belt. And now remember, he's just redone all of Babylon. He's just homemaked over his palace. And he is walking on the roof, looking out over all of the beauty that he has created, looking out at all of his world. And as he gets back from this war, this battle, 
one year after Daniel has said, here's what's going to happen to you, Nebuchadnezzar says one of the stupidest things in the Bible. (laughs) Verse 30, the king reflected on all of what I've just described. He reflected on his beautiful palace, on his city, on the victory that he just had, on the fact that he is the king over everyone in the entire world. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself has built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Did he take Daniel's advice? It doesn't look like it. It was all about him. Now, why would Nebuchadnezzar say that? Well, because he has supreme authority. (laughs) Why would I listen to God? Why would I do what Daniel has said? Why would I do that? And I think also rumbling around the back of his mind is God hasn't done anything to me yet. (laughs) It's been a year and none of these promises that Daniel had said would come true. I haven't lost my power. I'm standing on the top of my palace overlooking it all. I just won a battle. God hasn't done anything yet in a year. So why would I ever listen to God (laughs) at all? Why would I ever do any, any of what Daniel says or what God says at all? God hasn't paid any attention to this, and so I'm not going to worry about it either. This is the type of pride that Nebuchadnezzar is talking about. This is the kind of pride that Daniel is writing about. This is the kind of pride that God is talking to us about today. It's not the kind of pride where you get all proud for being patriotic at the Dodger Stadium when they sing the national anthem. It's not the kind of pride when, you know, your little five-year-old goes out there and scores their first soccer goal. It's not the kind of pride where you stand up a little straighter and work a little harder because your boss recognized something good that you did. That's not the pride. The pride is knowing what God wants you to do and not doing it. That is pride. That's the kind of pride that, that Nebuchadnezzar was guilty of. Nebuchadnezzar knew what God wanted him to do, and yet he did not do it. And he had been, he'd been warned for 12 months. And God was patient with him, you know, gave him, some, gave him time to change a little bit. But 12 months later, he didn't care one bit. And that is pride. Knowing what God wants you to do, and still not doing it is pride. I'm not, we're not worried about the things that you don't know that God wants you to do. We're not talking about those things. We're talking about the things that you already know that God wants you to do, but you're just not doing them. There's a lot of them in the Bible, but that's the benefit of reading God's Word and reading the stories of people. You know, I already said that pride is hard to see in ourselves. It's easy to see in other people, but it's really hard to see in ourselves. And so that's why we read the Bible. That's why we encourage you around here to read your Bible as often as you can. Because when you read your Bible, it's like a mirror. And you can see yourself in the lives of other people. I can't see it in me, but I can see it in Nebuchadnezzar. You can see it in Nebuchadnezzar. Why would I ever pay attention to God? Why would I ever do what Daniel says? Because God hasn't done anything anyway. The Bible has so many things. God has told us so many things that we know that we should be doing. And there's some things that we're still not doing. I'll just give you some examples, just kind of get your brain thinking in in how this would apply to a Christian today. 
The Bible talks about baptism. We saw baptism earlier today. And the Bible says, Jesus even says, that the next step after you put your faith and trust in Jesus is to be baptized. Make your faith public in front of people. And you're like, that's kind of a weird thing to do. I know it's a weird thing to do. When else do you do that? Never. But Jesus says that is the next thing that you do. It's not a way to finish your salvation. You're already going to heaven. But baptism is the way to say to other people, I'm saved. But it's mainly the way to follow through with Jesus' next instruction. That's living the life of a disciple, living your life for Jesus. And so we know that the Bible says that you should be baptized after you've been saved. You didn't need to come to church to know that. You already knew that. The Bible also tells us that we're supposed to give our first and our best financially back to God. The Bible says that God doesn't need our money. He doesn't want our money. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that God gave us all the money that we have already, and so he's not trying to steal our money. He already has enough. He doesn't need our money. But God also says in his Bible that where our treasure is or where our stuff is or where our money is, that's where our heart is, and God, of course, wants our heart. And so that's why Scripture talks about giving our first and best back to God as a way of worship to Him. But you didn't need to come to church to hear that. You already knew that. Those of you who aren't married yet, you don't need me to tell you that the Bible tells you to keep your mind and your body sexually pure before you get married. You know the Bible tells you that. You already knew that. You didn't have to come here and have me tell, tell you that at all. Hey, keep married things for married people. You don't need me to tell you that. You already knew that. Do you know the Bible also says, for those of you who are married, that you keep your mind and your body pure even after you're married? That, that you are your spouses and your focus is on your spouse for the rest of your life? Nobody else or anything else? So pornography, daydreaming about being married to somebody else, how better it would be than, than your own husband or your own wife? You didn't need me to tell you that, that you keep yourself for your, your spouse only because those are the vows that you took when you got married. You already knew that before you came here. You already knew that the Bible talks about using your spiritual gifts, your abilities to serve in ministry. We talk about that often here at Grace Community Church. The purpose of using your spiritual gifts in ministry is to encourage other Christians around the church that you're in. That is the purpose of, of that. You know the Bible tells you to do that. You didn't need to come this morning to hear that. You know the Bible tells you to work hard even though your boss is an idiot, okay? Tomorrow you're going to work and your boss will be an idiot, especially the pastoral staff here at Grace. They already know that their boss is an idiot, but they work hard anyway. And you know the Bible tells you to do that before you came here today. You know, wives, that the Bible tells you in, in Ephesians to respect your husband even if he doesn't deserve it? And the husbands are like, yeah. Don't forget, there's another one there, husbands. Here's yours. Husbands, you love your wives sacrificially. You give up what is of benefit to you, and you defer to your wife every single time, even if she doesn't deserve it, even if she doesn't respect you the way that you think you should be respecting. You, you submit by sacrificing for her. You knew that before you got here today. You didn't need me to tell you that. You don't need me to tell you anything about gossip, about telling other people's stories before they tell them. You already know what the Bible says about, about gossiping. You already know what the Bible says about eating things or smoking things or drinking things that started off as, as being just comforting and you like to do it at the end of the day, but over time it's become more and more insidious and it's gotten to the point of addiction, but you don't want to use the word addiction. But you know what the Bible says about that. 
that we shouldn't be controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit, that we shouldn't be drunk with anything at all. You know what the Bible says about those things, even before you came here today. Those of you who are teenagers, you're living with your parents, you already know that you're supposed to obey your parents. I didn't have to tell you that. You already knew you're supposed to obey your parents. And also, for those of us who have moved out, because it was really hard obeying our parents, we moved out, and did you know that you still respect your parents? You probably already knew that. You want to respect your parents. You usually try to do that. You know what the Bible says about debt, about spending money on things that you can't afford, that you become a slave to the person that loaned you the the money? You know what the Bible says about all these things and all sorts of other things, but we still do some things that we know we shouldn't do, don't we? You probably pick something on that list. Oh yeah, I still kind of do that. Or I don't do the things that I know that I'm supposed to do. The only reason that you continue to do it is because God hasn't gotten you yet, right? That's the only reason. We have the same mind as Nebuchadnezzar. The only reason that we continue to do something that we know that we shouldn't do is because he hasn't gotten us yet. Nothing bad has happened yet, but you know in the back of your mind that if your wife ever found out who you're flirting with at work, she's going to leave you. You know that. You know that you're going to get fired from your job if your boss ever finds out what you do when he's not around. You know that if your parents ever find out what it's like when they're not at home, but you're at home, you know that you will lose their trust forever if it ever gets out. You know that if your internet search history that's on your computer or on your phone ends up in our church bulletin, you would never show your face here ever again. And the reason that you continue to do those things is just because your internet search history hasn't hit the bulletin yet, right? God hasn't gotten you yet. We're all like Nebuchadnezzar. We can see ourselves in Nebuchadnezzar. He's like a mirror to us. And we look at all those things and we're like, okay, I can identify with one of those things. There's something on here that you could identify with. Something on here that that you know that you should be doing. You knew it before you got here. And you're going to know it when you leave. But you're just going to continue to do the wrong thing just because God hasn't gotten you yet. That is pride. That's what that is. That's pride. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was experiencing, and that's what you're experiencing. And God was patient with Nebuchadnezzar, wasn't he? He's been patient with you, hasn't he? I mean, your internet search history is not my next click on this thing, okay? You're like, I can come next week too. You look at that list. What thing on there stands out to you is something that you know you should be doing, but you're still not doing it. That's just pride. Now, I'm not here to make you feel guilty. Contrary to popular belief, that's not my job. (laughs) If you're feeling guilty today, don't blame me. If you're feeling guilty today, that's God's Holy Spirit. You blame Him for that. And Grace Community Church is not for perfect people that do all of these things perfectly, and they come here to get away from all the riffraff who are sinners. That's not what Grace Community Church is. We're a church that is a hospital for broken, hurting people that look at Nebuchadnezzar, that look at Scripture and say, man, I can see myself there. I I messed up there. I messed up there too. That's what Grace Community Church is is for. I want to remind you what Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar at the end in chapter 4, verse 26. He says, after you recognize that it is heaven that rules... After you recognize that 
that it is God that's the one that's in control. Do you recognize that God is who he says he is? It says, therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. You break away from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Basically saying, here's the list, Nebuchadnezzar. Do what you know you're supposed to do and don't do what you're not supposed to do. Do what you know you're supposed to do and stop doing what you know you're not supposed to do. This is the application for believers in in 2019 as we read this part of Scripture. It's pride to know what God says and not do it. That's pride. And so maybe there's someone in here that needs to be baptized because you just know that that's your next step. You saw it happen again today. The water's nice and warm. You don't do it for the warm water. You did it because Jesus says that's just the next thing to do. And so you would do it just because you want to be doing the right thing. Or maybe you haven't given sacrificially, financially with your money. You've been spending your extra on yourself. I want you to know that I don't want your money. Don't give any money out of guilt, the Bible says. Don't give it out of some sort of uh, feeling of pressure. What I want you to do is I want you to go home today, and I want you to talk with your spouse about are we giving money in a way that we're worshiping God? Are we giving our first and best as a way of acknowledging that God has given it all to us, that everything we have is His, and we want our hearts to be with Him? And I want you to discuss with your spouse, and you come up with a plan of the way that you could do that. That's why we have the offering here on the Sunday morning. It's not to pilfer you for money. It's a part of worshiping God, giving our first and best, and putting our money where we want our hearts to follow it. And so maybe that's the thing that you need to do. Maybe you're dating somebody, you're not even married yet, and you're starting to do married things before you're married. Stop it. Don't do the things that you know you shouldn't do. That's what Daniel's saying. Don't do the things that you know you shouldn't do. If you're married and you're watching porn or you're daydreaming about being married to somebody else because that would be so much, stop it. Stop doing the things that you know that you shouldn't do. Maybe you know that you should be serving in ministry, that your gifts, your spiritual gifts that God has given you is not for you to hoard, but for the benefit of the other people that are around you. I want you to begin to serve in ministry on your, that little tear-off card in your bulletin, the one that we have that little video of every week that you get tired of seeing. One of those check marks is, I want to serve here at Grace. Mark that thing. Make sure we have your name and, and cell phone number and email address. We'll contact you, and we'll start to talk to you about a way to serve here at Grace Community Church because that's doing what you know you should do. Tomorrow you're going to go to work, and you're going to work with integrity. You're going to work hard even if your boss is, is an idiot. You're going to submit in your marriage because you know that that's what you're supposed to do. Daniel says, you start to do the things that you're supposed to do and stop doing the things that you're not supposed to. Stop gossiping. Some things in your life maybe have gotten to the addiction point, and you kind of know it with food or what you drink or smoke or whatever else. And it's gotten to the addiction point. It's time to back yourself back off of that again because you know what God says about that. Maybe you haven't been being terribly obedient to your parents. It'll take a day day when you change that. Maybe you're in financial debt. Debt is, I just want more stuff than God has provided for me. That's what debt is. And so you can't undo debt instantly. You can't pray away debt. But you can just not buy the next TV, right? That's how you undo debt, is don't buy the next TV until you have money for it. 
Don't buy the next thing until you have money for it. That's the way that you would follow through on knowing what you should do and then doing it. And so that's the message for Nebuchadnezzar, and that's the message for you. Interestingly, though, we can apply all this to Christians, but this didn't come from a Christian. Nebuchadnezzar is not a believer yet. He's not even a believer here. Remember that? And so when Daniel comes up with these words of, hey, there's a problem, Daniel is delivering the full message of the gospel. There's, it means good news, but for there to be good news, that has to be contrasted with bad news. And so Daniel delivers both, the good news and the bad news. The bad news is there's a problem, Nebuchadnezzar, and that is your sin. That's the word that he uses, sin. The best definition I know of of sin is anything that you've done that you shouldn't do, anything that you say you shouldn't say, or anything you think you shouldn't think. That is sin. And so sin, the Bible tells us, separates us from God for all of eternity in a place called hell. That's the bad news. And that's why most people don't like to go to church. And that's why most people don't like to go to like funerals because it reminds them that there could actually be a problem. Nobody likes to know that there's a problem. They just want to think that everything is great. But Daniel delivers the bad news first so that then there could come the good news. And the good news is there's a rescue from all of this. And so this only gives a portion of the idea of the of the rescue. Verse 27 is not saying, you go do good things, and then God will love you. That is not what this is communicating. You stop gossiping, and now all of a sudden, God will love you. No. Next week, we're going to get to what happens with Nebuchadnezzar, because God is patient. He's patient with you. Your web browsing history isn't up here. The conversations that you have in your house, and you have that little Alexa or Google smart home in your house, we have not recorded that, and we're not going to play it for our church yet okay? We'll hold that over you for later. God is patient with you because those things have not come out yet, isn't he? But his patience runs out, and it runs out with Nebuchadnezzar, so we're going to see that next week. And ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar becomes a believer. He changes his mind about who God is. That's where salvation comes, changing your mind about who Jesus is, Jesus is God who came to earth in the flesh, meaning as a person, he lived a perfect life, he never sinned one time, so that when he gets to the cross, he's not dying for his own sin, he's dying for the sins of the world. Three days later, Easter is a real day event in history where Jesus rises from the grave, something that nobody else could ever do. It had to have been God, he proves that he is God. And today, Jesus is in heaven, willing to listen to your prayer. And that's all a Christian is. A Christian isn't a person who's, who does everything perfectly. A Christian is simply a person who's changed their mind about who Jesus is. Maybe you need to change your mind about who Jesus is, that he is the Savior, that he is the one that has died on the cross for your sin, and that because he really is God, that he would be Lord of your life. That's why we call him the Lord and Savior. If you heard that phrase, Lord and Savior, Savior means Savior from your sins, Lord means he's overseeing your life. And so that's all a Christian is, is a person who's made Jesus their Savior and Lord because they changed their mind about who he is. So you just need to come up in your own mind and decide, is Jesus that person? God, who's died on the cross for me, Savior of the world and in heaven today. Is that who Jesus is for you? And if that is... All you do is you talk to God about that. That's it. That's where salvation comes from, is by putting your faith and your trust in that Jesus. And 
I want to at least give you the opportunity to, to have these conversations before God. So I'm going to ask all of you would, be, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a minute? It creates a little separation between you and the person next to you for just a minute. But if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus and you know today that, that you need a Savior, you've heard the bad news about your sin, you've heard the good news that Jesus is the one who came to rescue you from those sins, and you want Him to be your Savior, you, you know that you need that. Here's what you could say to God. In the comfort of your own heart, you don't need to say anything out loud, you don't need to walk anywhere, God knows what's on your mind. But this is what you could say. You could say, dear God, I... I know that I've sinned. I've done things I should not have done. And I know that I need a Savior from my sin because of that. And so I believe that Jesus is that Savior. I believe that Jesus is the one that has come from heaven to earth, that he is God and man. I believe that he lived a perfect life. I believe that he never sinned one time. And so that when he went to the cross, I believe that he was dying for my sin, not his own. And I believe that three days later, he rose from the grave, proving that he really is God. And I know that I need my sins forgiven, and he's the only one that can wash my sins away. He can take them away. And so I put my faith and my trust and my belief in this Savior. I put my eternity into the hands of this Savior. And because of that, because of who he is, I want him to be my Lord. I want him to oversee my entire life. Not just my salvation, but oversee my entire life. With your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, the immediate promise is that God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes and lives inside of you and helps you to live a life that is honoring to him. Though you might not be perfect until you get to heaven. Many of you are already saved. You're already going to heaven, and that's a wonderful thing. But you realize that you've been proud. You've seen it in Nebuchadnezzar, and now you kind of notice it in yourself that there are some things that you know that you should do and you're not doing them. There are some things that you know that you shouldn't be doing, but you still are. And there's not a better time in the world than right now to respond to his word and apologize. That's what confession is. It's just apologize. You don't need to confess to me. You confess to God. It's in the quietness of your own heart. You could confess it to God, and it's just by saying, God, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Mention what it is. God knows what it is. You know what it is. Just mention, I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. I know I shouldn't be doing it. And I need your help to do the right thing instead. I want to take Daniel's advice and do the right thing instead of the wrong thing, but I need your help instead. Well, dear God, I pray on behalf of all of us in this room, we thank you for your word and thank you for uh, making your word a mirror today for us, that we would see ourselves in it at least a little bit. Thank you that your Bible is how you speak to us today and that our church can deepen its roots in you because of it. And for that, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.